Yes, this film tends to do that to newcomers. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to The Goods, a film podcast. I'm Brian. Dan's here with me. And we talk films here on this show. Sometimes in scare quotes. Films. <laughs> So-called. Yeah. So, Brian, you had me watch infamous, legendary Beloved slash much reviled 2003 erotic thriller slash that's too generous a title. Uh, I don't know what you would say, but The Room. Often regarded as one of the worst films of all time, or at least of the 21st century, a cult classic. And another movie I hadn't seen, which is The Disaster Artist, which is about the making of The Room, and some of the figures' lives leading up to the making and release of that film. That's right, because for people who have been following along, this is actually the final chapter of our bloated Movies About Making Movies Month. It has ballooned to nine consecutive episodes, and I would say ten episodes if we loop in Dan's early pick of Babylon and Singing in the Rain. Which was basically like an onboard backdoor pilot to the month, which I didn't even think about at the time. Exactly, but they all fit well together, and it has been a journey. I think it's been fun. I completely agree. I could go on this path even further, although I think the time is right. This is a good note to go out on. Right. It'll be good to wrap it up here and be able to move on to something else for a while. And of course, we can always return to movies about making movies. I'm sure we've covered a few outside the month already. The one that comes to mind for me is Boogie Nights. But I think there's there's at least a couple others that would probably fit the criteria. Maybe a little bit of the Tom Hanks one. That thing you do. Oh, yeah. I mean, we discussed every single Tom Hanks movie, so that wasn't initially very helpful. (laughs) But what about, Dan, if we did go a little bit longer, what would your next pick be to queue up? I think my next pick would be potentially One Cut of the Dead, which was recommended on our Discord. Have you seen that one, Brian? No. What country is that one from? I think Japan. I'm not 100% sure. It was recommended by someone who joined our Discord. So go to thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, uh, reach out to us. We may discuss a movie you suggest if you put it there. The other movie I might have picked is Adaptation, which I mentioned. It's a Spike Jones movie. And I kind of have a long list, to be quite honest. Yeah, I've got, I've got uh, four or five of them here on my short list, so... What else comes springs to mind? Uh, hit me with yours. Okay. So first up, I've got American Movie, which is a documentary. Uh, I've name-dropped James Rolfe a couple times. This is one that he taught me about and is one of his favorites. It's about these two indie filmmakers in, like, Minnesota or something. They have, like, the Fargo accent. And they're working on a independent horror film that's called Coven, except they don't know how to pronounce it. So they're always talking about it as Coven. <laughs> Another one that was possible, Best Worst Movie, the documentary about making Troll 2. Oh, man. Well, Troll 2 is definitely going to come up today. Right. And a couple others. One I thought of was Shadow of the Vampire which is a fictionalized telling of the making of Nosferatu. 
except the gimmick is that they actually discover a real vampire to cast in the movie. <laughs> so Orlock, Orlock is really a vampire that they found somewhere, and he's played by Willem Dafoe. That's based off of the real guy, right? The something Shrek. Yeah, Max Shrek. Right. The yeah, the premise was Max Shrek is actually a vampire. That sounds really fun, actually. Then I was also thinking King Kong. You know, I thought that would be good because it's a filmmaker goes to the island and is like looking for something big. Oh wow! So that that could have been good too. I've actually never seen King Kong. He's played by Jack Black in the Peter Jackson one. I've never seen any King Kong, believe it or not. Something I should correct at some point. Um, the other ones that were on my short list, Tropic Thunder. Have you seen Tropic Thunder? Oh, Tropic Thunder is so good. That would have been a good pick. Yeah. And in the vein of you picking movies and then movies about the making of that movie, and in some cases, even a documentary about it, um, I've never seen Apocalypse Now, and I know there's a documentary about it. I think it's called Heart of Darkness or Hearts of Darkness. So pairing those two would have been a, an intense episode because I know Apocalypse Now is like a is a beefy piece of classic cinema. But I thought that would have been fun, too. Cool. Certainly potential to return to the form at some point. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe we'll do a movies about making TV or something. Hugo, because I'm a big Melies guy. Never seen Hugo. Tarantino's most recent was one. So, yeah, I mean, you could go on and on. We talked about some potential Coen Brothers ones. Ripe topic, as we've said all along. Yeah, there's a lot of Tarantino you could use. I mean, even Inglorious Bastards could count. It's it's ripe, ripe for exploration. But it'll be good to talk other topics as well. Well, we have a little bit more work here to do, Dan, before the month is done, <laughs> because we need to talk about Tommy Wiseau's masterpiece, The Room, from 2003. So what has been your previous exposure to this phenomenon really just word of mouth so I've, I've heard many things about it and even people who i consider relatively immune to the charms of so-called so bad it's good movie making have been like wow was that an experience watching that one and you know i i, I have a mixed relationship with so bad it's good watching we talked about it on George of the Jungle, too, which to me crossed over from so bad into so bad it's good. And for me, like if it manages to entertain and provoke thought, even if it's like not what the director is intended and it's not on the normal axes by which you measure quality to me, that's still good. It's good if it's if it's doing something, you know. And that's why I honored George of the Jungle, too, with a good rating, even though it's like one of the most bafflingly incompetent pieces of corporate shit straight to dvd filmmaking that i've ever witnessed but you know man now i want to see a tarzan movie with tommy wiseau <laughs> oh hi monkey <laughs> right so this was independently written produced directed and starring this guy named tommy wiseau who we will absolutely be talking about at length here tonight but it came out in 2003 and like very limited release like booked a theater to screen it for a while and i gotta look a little bit more into how it actually came to wider attention i mean it must have been largely word of mouth but it didn't really like blow up i don't think until around about 2010 is when everybody was talking about it mm -hmm. i personally remember that i was in a club at william and mary in undergrad <clears throat> that was called the tribe society for paranormal research i talked about this back in our amazing world of ghosts episode but sometimes we would do ghost hunts we would go out with like the evp recorder and walk around colonial williamsburg but most of the time we would just sit in a room that we booked and watch stuff uh, on YouTube, a lot of it was in search of hosted by Leonard Nimoy. But one of the weeks, somebody said, guys, you need to watch this trailer. And it was The Room. And then 
they also played, I think, the flower shop scene. And, of course, I wanted to know more. Um, For reference, I really got into the So Bad They're Good movies with Troll 2 uh, when I saw that round about 2006. So, and then I kind of made it my identity for a little while, like spreading Troll 2 around. So then 2010, this one came on my radar. And soon thereafter, I got a DVD of it. And some of my fraternity brothers, fraternity in square quotes, my uh, music-focused fraternity, they said, hey, you have a DVD of The Room? We want to see it. And I said, listen, guys, I'll show you The Room, but first you have to watch Troll 2. And so we watched Troll 2, and then we watched The Room, and then they said, we should make Brian Terrell Movie Night an official fraternity event. Wow. And that ended up having legs. Like, they actually enjoyed the experience. And so then, like, the last two and a half years of my college experience, I would periodically host these Brian Terrell Movie Night events. And I made a Facebook page associated with those events. And then on that page, I started posting reviews of things. And then Dan reached out and said, hey, do you want to collab on my blog in 2013? And the rest is history of a sort. This podcast's roots can be directly tied back to the room. We wouldn't be having this conversation today were it not for Tommy Wiseau. Do you understand life? Do you? (laughs) But back in summer of 2010, and actually probably where I got the DVD, I went to a theater in D.C. called East Street Cinema. It's like an art house theater downtown. May have been where I went to see Moonrise Kingdom when it first came out. But I went there because they were doing a screening, double book of Troll 2 and Best Worst Movie, the documentary, And George Hardy, the actor who played the dad in Troll 2, was going to be there. So I met him, talked with him, got him to sign some fan art and stuff. And then on the wall in the theater, I saw an ad that said, Come back next week for The Room with Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. I said, I'm going to do that. I will come back for that. You, you had to do a double take. You stopped in your tracks on that one. So then the next week found me back in the same theater <laughs> talking with Tommy Wiseau and join our Discord for some supplemental media listeners because you better believe I'll drop some pictures of me bear-hugging Tommy Wiseau in front of the room poster. Tell, tell us a little bit about what how crowded was this, how rowdy was the viewing Did everybody talk to Tommy? Was it like a really personal conversation? It was pretty crowded. It was definitely a lot more people than at the Troll 2 thing. And like people were lined up outside the theater because the way the theater is, is there's like a street level entry and then you go down an escalator down into the theater part. So up in this area right out front at street level, people were like lining up for when Tommy was going to pull up and he did and with greg who plays mark and we'll we'll talk through the specifics of this so tommy all right we haven't described tommy Wiseau. i'm gonna want you to chip in on this too dan so he has this long black hair it looks like a halloween wig and he wears these dark sunglasses He has this really prominent Geico caveman brow jutting out of his forehead. And then the way that he dresses, he wears like a dress shirt and a vest. So like formal, semi-formal upper half, then jeans on the bottom and like three piratey belts all stacked atop each other with like a bunch of studs through them. Just kind of haphazard at angles like Edward Scissorhands or something he's the guy where if you went in a room your eye would would gravitate towards him and you'd be like 
I'm going to make sure not to have a conversation with that guy. <laughs> and then how would you describe the way that he speaks? Well, so I watched The Room with my wife, and we noted that the way he talks reminds us a lot of the way our three-year-old talks, <laughs> which is to say pretty broken English and pretty terrible pronunciation of everything. And I, I think it's like a combination of an accent. So one thing we haven't said about Tommy is that to some extent, his background is shrouded in mystery. I, from what I was Googling today, like the mysteries are more or less solved, but like still he, he kind of is coy about it, it seems. And basically as will become important in the making of, he was like independently wealthy enough to finance the making of a real ass movie and kind of vague about his age. But in the movie, he definitely looks like he's, I would guess early fifties. Would you say Brian? Yeah, I would guess 50. Yeah. And I, I think he's from, I would guess like Eastern Europe or something like that. Like there's a hint of that in his voice. So I think it's a combination of a weird accent that he just never could shake and probably like a speech impediment or, or like just doesn't talk quite right. I don't know. Right. To me, the impression is a guy from Europe pretending to be from somewhere else in Europe. <laughs> and I think there's stuff about that in the the book that inspired the biopic. That maybe he was like from Poland or something originally and then lived in France for a while and then moved to New Orleans. But certainly, as you said, shrouded in mystery are his origins. But very just alien, very strange experience. Alien is the right word because he just doesn't fit in with the other humans like in the in the scene and in the movie and just like in general doesn't fit in with other humans. And so then I got in the line to go meet Tommy and everybody was filing down and having him sign stuff. And I brought some more fan art, like printed from DeviantArt, just funny pictures printed out on cardstock to have something for him to sign and handed some out to my friends who went with me. The one that I had and still have for him to sign was a drawing of the flower shop scene where there's a pug on the counter and he walks in and buys a dozen red roses, please. Then he pats the dog and says, hi, doggy. And then leaves. Yeah. Yes. So when I handed him this drawing, he started like improvising a conversation between the Tommy and the drawing and the dog and was like drawing talk bubbles of what they're saying to each other. On the piece of paper, he says, I say to Doggy, are you in love? And Doggy says, yes, I am. And he was drawing this in the talk bubbles. So now I have this little Tommy Wiseau original custom dialogue exchange. Oh, my God. You definitely do you have like a high quality scan of that or something, Brian? You could take a picture of it. Yeah, I do. I do. I'll share it. That's amazing. And then we we all went and stood by the poster board. With uh, with me and Tommy and my friends and Greg Sestero, who definitely looks less passionate about the whole thing. Greg Sestero is just standing there looking bored. But ultimately, we'll we'll find he's the protagonist, the, the storyteller of the story behind the story. All right, Brian, I don't know when the right time to bring this up is. Maybe, you know what, I think it's probably later. You can noodle on this from now until then. How much do you personally relate to Tommy Wiseau? See some of Tommy Wiseau in yourself and vice versa. Well, I'm curious to know how much of me you see in Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's noodle on that and return to it. So then in, I guess, 2013, 10th anniversary of the movie, Greg Sestero, the co-star of the film... He plays the character Mark. He wrote a memoir. Well, like half wrote it. There's a, a guy, presumably the ghostwriter credited on the book, whose name is Tom Bissell. 
but this book is titled The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room. And so I became aware of this in late 2015 when James Franco bought the rights to the book and said he was going to turn it into a movie. So with that on the horizon, I thought, whoa, I need to track this thing down and, and read it. A side note is that when I did my 2013 Top 100 Films blog series on Dan's site, I wrote an entry on Ed Wood that we talked about in my last selection here for the podcast. And I ended that article saying, how long will we need to wait for the Tommy Wiseau movie and who's going to play him? And lo and behold, it was like 18 months we had to wait for the announcement. <laughs> it wasn't very long at all. But I went ahead that Christmas and bought the audiobook of The Disaster Artist because it's narrated by Greg Sestero. And anytime he talks about the things that Tommy does or says, he does an impression of Tommy Wiseau. And it was very funny. Also, so many scenes from the book that show up in the movie are like very specific to the point that I feel like to fully appreciate the movie, you got to read the book. There were a couple things left out, but there were so many little things included, like Tommy having a robot crab on the dashboard of his car. I did notice that. Yeah, I thought that couldn't be made up. That's got to be sourced from something. <laughs> <laughs> and so those were the two films that we watched this week, The Room and James Franco's adaptation from 2017 of the behind the scenes making of called The Disaster Artist, starring James Franco as Tommy and his brother, Dave Franco, as Greg Sestero. And just like an absolute bumper crop of celebrity cameos. Uh, yeah, mostly comedians. It's like the whole Seth Rogen crowd, I would say, and the like the extended universe from there, although not quite overlapping with the entire Apatow gang. Like there's no Jason Siegel in there, no... Uh, Jay Baruchel, but kind of that whole younger millennial comedian crowd that I just think of as being a whole unit. We talked about it not too long ago, but like, I think the world of comedy, like once you're in is actually pretty small and everybody knows each other. And so it's kind of cool when they all come together on something like this at some point, And I may as well do it now should probably point out that like this the Disaster Artist was pretty much like the last thing that James Franco did before he was outed as a total creep as part of the Me Too movement. Uh, lots of sexual impropriety and allegations of abuse and such and has subsequently been blacklisted. Like Seth Rogen basically instantly dumped him as soon as the allegations went public and James Franco has done pretty much nothing. And Seth Rogen has gone on to become like one of the biggest comedy producers in Hollywood even though they had kind of been partners up until then. So that casts a little bit of a pall on the movie for me. I mean, you know, you try to separate the art and the artist. And I think there's probably a lot of skeletons in the closet for like older comedians and stuff that never got outed. I don't know. I uh, was thinking of that a little bit, but as an actor, I kind of always liked James Franco. He kind of like is a little bit of a cool guy. In fact, he kind of made me think of like the James Dean archetype in some ways, which is funny because I know James will we'll talk about Tommy Wiseau idolized James Dean to some extent. And like he was in Freaks and Geeks, uh, that is James Franco. And he was really, really good in that. And then he's been kind of funny. I kind of felt he got more goony and weird as time passed, like just leaned into weirder stuff, whereas he was kind of like the intense, cool, but kind of weird guy in his early stuff. But do you have any James F Franco thoughts, Brian? Well, it's pretty normy, but I like him in the Spider-Man movies as Harry Osborn. Yeah, he's good in those. But yeah, anyways, just just a proviso. I mean, it's whenever you talk about movies, our friend Gavin, he's appeared on the pod. He's a regular on the Discord. I talk to him a lot. He has a policy that he doesn't read any books by living authors 
basically for this exact reason. It's like <laughs> you don't want your money and attention to go for like a living person who's been outed as a creep uh, or a predator or a problematic person in some way. Gotta ask yourself if you can separate the disaster art from the disaster artist. Well said, yeah. Just something to be aware of as you, you watch the disaster artist, but we, we can move on. Sh sure enough. All right. So, Dan, The Room. I'm glad that you watched it with somebody, as I encourage you to do. I feel like you, you just gotta share that experience when you first witness it. So, very first impressions when you start this movie up, Dan. So when you start it up, it's got a, if we really want to go to the beginning, it's got like a tacky ass Wiseo films, like GIF animation. That's like the production thing. Correction, two tacky ass <laughs> Wiseo logos. <laughs> and then just like an astounding amount of slowly paced establishing shot footage of San Francisco. And then... I don't know if we're just diving in, but the, the movie opens with basically three sex scenes. And it's like after we kind of follow Tommy Wiseau, immediately this wacko looking dude like riding around a trolley car and stuff. And then, yeah, three sex scenes that each feel like they're 75 minutes long. <laughs> Accurate. So, yes, San Francisco is our setting. Johnny... Our protagonist is played by Tommy Wiseau and this whole opening credits, he's he's making his way downtown or, or back to his his apartment on the cable car. Classic San Francisco. And I mean, just looking at him, he's he's kind of off putting. He's got like a suit jacket and yeah, just this this aura of like he thawed out of a glacier. <laughs> But then, I mean, you haven't heard him talk yet. This whole buildup is he's going across town. He hasn't spoken. And then he gets to the door of his apartment. He opens it up. He steps in and says, Hey, babe! And slams the door behind him. <laughs> which shatters this, up till now, like, pretty spellbinding orchestral score. Like, it's, it's not high-level stuff, necessarily, but it's, like, original music... Um, I, I find it kind of evocative. There are elements of the production which are capable, which is so weird because others are clearly not. Yeah, I mean, it's a real movie. Like, it was made on a budget of an actual movie, at least an indie movie, and aspects of the craft look like they were made in Hollywood. Other times it looks like it was made in somebody's backyard, but, you know... I agree. There, there, there are real movie things in this. And I think that's kind of a component for most bad movies is like, it's not just dollar store production values, but like when you have something just completely insane or, or ridiculous inside some trappings that are like recognizable as a movie, it's like people wouldn't put feeders that movie that we watched that had like a $50 budget or something as a worst ever movie. It's like that's just low hanging fruit. That's not even fair. And plus that has more entertainment value, I'd say anyways. But the fact that there is like, hey, cinematography, lighting, actors who are professional or at least aspiring professional actors in the movie just makes it all the more surreal. Yep. And I'm glad that you mentioned the the other like Z grade movies, uh, because in terms of comparing this to like Troll 2 or Plan 9 from Outer Space or anything like that, Feeders is the one that you said. This is like a very staid standard drama in terms of like the story elements. It's the story of a love triangle. It's not supernatural or horror or anything like that. Right. No goblins. Well, you got one goblin, but he's not called <laughs> such. I'm still reeling from the revelation that you showed people Troll 2 in the room in one night. Like the, the, how did their brains not like squirt out of their ears after watching both of those in one sitting? <laughs> yeah, how could they ask for more after that? 
I don't know. But the basics of the story we can get across pretty quick because Tommy plays a banker named Johnny and he lives in this apartment with his future wife. They never say fiance. It's always my future wife, Lisa. And then Lisa decides she's going to two-time Johnny and go around behind his back with his best friend, Mark, played by Greg Sestero. So, like, it, it boils down to Lisa is bad and Johnny is a saint. And all of this is filtered through. You said he's the director. He's also the writer. And it's filtered through the, the clearly like every word that's coming out of anyone's mouth is the way that Tommy Wiseau would say it, too. It's like there is a credited script supervisor. And it's like, what the hell would is how could there have been a professional script supervisor on this thing? It's it doesn't it's the most incompetent piece of writing like the person barely spoke English and like maybe had heard of movies before he made this. But like, I don't know. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like the Tennessee Williams, Dan. <laughs> and, and yeah, right from the jump, we get sex scenes, extended sex scenes because so Johnny comes, he gives Lisa like a dress or something. He says, anything for my princess. And uh, and then, yeah, they're boning up in this, like, uh, describe the optics, Dan, <laughs> of some of these sex scenes. Well, first of all, probably the thing that me and my wife talked the most about is, like, what is the room? It says, it says it's the room, but what is the room? There's not a clear room. Most of it happens in this one apartment that I it's like it's supposed to be in a building connected to other ones, but you only ever see this one. And it like goes straight up to a bedroom that has a bed, but it doesn't seem like the bedroom is like really separated from the whole house. It's like this kind of open air spiral staircase up to the bedroom. That's got like a four poster bed with these sh like thin gauzy sh satin sheety type things draped over it and like candles and stuff. And there's like a water feature, like a little constantly trickling waterfall hanging on the wall. And the sex scenes themselves, first of all, they're, they should be, well, they shouldn't exist. That's the first of all. The second of all is if they do exist, they should be like 10 seconds long for the amount of content that's actually in them. It's not like, I don't know, like there's anything conveyed about the characters or like anything actually erotic in these sex scenes. It's a lot of petting and a lot of like awkward floating camera angles, a lot of Tommy Wiseau's butt sticking out and like thrusting. And it's it's just horrible to look at. It's the worst. I felt so, so bad for this actress who is she does nudity. And like, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever been to her website, Brian? Have you? Yes, I went today. OK, what did you find on it's uh, Juliet Danielle? It's depressing. She's like. You're here because of the room. And I tried to for, to move on from that part of my life. But I understand a lot of it brings a lot of joy to a lot of fans. So as complex a relationship as I have with it, I'm here. You can see some of my behind the scene photos and shop for my store. And in the time since then, I've become a ally and a mental health advocate and things like that. And like reading between the lines, like this probably torpedoed her career and like it's kind of a humiliating role in some ways. And I feel very bad for her out of all of the people who were there was downstream impacts from the room. Right. I mean, it's a thankless position for her to be in. And also the character is just like the worst, thinnest harpy. Nobody likes Lisa. It's. Well, they all lust after her, but none of them actually like her. That's true. That's right. Everyone has to comment that Lisa looks hot tonight. Even the... Okay, we got to get to Denny. I have th Denny thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I think even before the very first sex scene, this character Denny shows up. So Denny is a man boy. <laughs> How old is he? What What's his age supposed to be? 
<laughs> he looks like he's 27. He sometimes talks like he's 13, but they're like paying for his school. So I guess he's in college, but he's always around. What the hell is going on with Denny? <laughs> and what kind of name is Denny? <laughs> well, there must be some out there because somebody owns Denny's. That's true. But yeah, very odd. And he, they're like, well, Denny, we're going to go upstairs and have sex. <laughs> and Denny says, can I join you or something or like that? It, can I watch? Yeah, I like to watch you guys. It's like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> Have you done it in the past? <laughs> oh, so that's how things are at their house. <laughs> yeah, he's he's an odd one. But they say, two is nice, but three's a crowd. And they, they kind of shoo Denny away. That's another thing is characters are just constantly <laughs> arriving and departing from this house. It's like they come in, they always say, oh, hi. And then they find some reason to leave again, like almost immediately. I will say this is a problem that's not exclusive to the room. It's one of the pet peeves of my wife. If you watch like dramas on TV, particularly like soapy ones, like uh, I remember we noticed it all the time in the show Gossip Girl when we binged Gossip Girl. It's like characters arrived at some place, somebody's swanky apartment. They have a conversation and then leave again. It's like you wouldn't go across town for a 35 second conversation. Yeah, realistically, once you're somewhere, you stay there for a little while. Or you would text them. Or something. <laughs> That's a good point. So, yes, Tommy, Johnny supports like multiple people financially he's like a bastion of the community just this this marble man <laughs> and and lisa is scheming against him she's decided she's bored with johnny and she's like telling everybody when she's alone with them in the room that she's she's cheating on him and she <laughs> she calls up mark i love how like indifferent to this whole thing Mark seems <laughs> the very first time she calls him he's sitting somewhere in his car the car doesn't seem to be moving he's just sitting there and he says yeah what is it I'm very busy <laughs> well the car is going nowhere and I, <laughs> I want to know <laughs> who answers the phone like that uh, especially if like yeah your paramour is calling I'm I'm very busy and then later on, she she calls him and she's like, I want to see you. And he says, what are you talking about? I just saw you. Also, yes, good question. What room is the room? I think this originated as a play script and they actually just had one space for it. But most of the time we're in Johnny and Lisa's apartment, which, as you said, is it's got like a loft area with the bed up above the the like sitting room it's very red especially upstairs it's almost like suspiria territory uh what what other quirks did you notice of this story world dan uh, you could forever spiral downwards on the insanity of this i mean insanity isn't quite the right word it may be inanity but it's like filtered through madman's head it's like individual scenes just Turns of phrase and timing are just, they make no sense. But okay, so bits of the story. So plot threads pop up and disappear. By far the most jarring is Denny is on the roof. There's a lot of scenes that take place on this roof. And a drug dealer comes up and like starts beating him up and says, I need my money. And Denny says, I need, I can get it in five minutes, which like, what is that even? It's like normally in this thing, be like, I'll have it for you in a week, man. I'll get it in five minutes. What does that mean? It's like in a lockbox or something downstairs. <laughs> and he's standing there dribbling a basketball. Off the roof. He's like, he's like, just wait five minutes. <laughs> like, what is going to happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. So then some people come and fight the drug dealer, including Johnny, of course. And they say they're going to bring what is it bring him to prison i don't know like some weird way of saying it something like that bring him to the police and it's either johnny or lisa but one of them is like 
what kind of money is it? Like asks that question over and over again. What kind of money is it? Like presumably is like, oh, I guess what they're fishing for is like money I use to buy drugs. But like what kind of money that doesn't have a question like money is a a thing like you have some amount of it, but it's not like there's different. It's not like a cherry money. Oh, well, I got my vanilla money today. No, it's money is money. It's like, I don't know. Since we're digging into the nitty gritty of this scene, the weirdest exchange to me is that Denny says he owes Chris R, which is the name of the gangster. He owes Chris R money for drugs. And then Lisa or Lisa's mom says, what are you giving them to him? Selling them to him? No, (laughs) buying them from him. That's he established that already. Yeah, very weird. But they managed to steal the gun away from Chris R and and shuffle him off to the slammer, I guess. Uh, Lisa's mom, Claudette, shows up from time to time. And when you said a thread that gets dropped, the one that I thought of was she says, I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. Literally never mentioned again after that. I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) Well, this is going to like totally it's going to be it's going to increase the tension between them. Oh, but I need money to pay for the the treatment. Nope. Just oh, I got breast cancer. OK. <laughs> Let's move on. A couple other characters in the mix. Uh, there's a couple named Michelle and Mike, which if your names are Michelle and Michael, I, I would already hesitate to get in a relationship like that. <laughs> Too similar. Uh, but Michelle is Lisa's friend and confidant, and then her boyfriend, Mike, is mostly around to, like, periodically wander into the apartment with Michelle and have sex. Yeah, that's weird. They they go into this apartment, which is, I think it's the same apartment, Tommy's apartment, and they, like, walk in, and then they just start making out and stripping off garments. It's like, would you go to a friend's house and just start doing that? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> But, you know, that had me thinking, well, this is clearly more than one room, so they should just call it the apartment. And then I was thinking, Uh. oh, it's the apartment where everybody goes to have sex, (laughs) like in the apartment. From 1960. Good, good connection. I like it. And also, for whatever reason, Mike is the actor that to me seems like he's intentionally being silly. That there's like a couple points where he makes jokes and things. Talks about losing me underwears. (laughs) He's the comic relief in a movie that does not need comic relief. (laughs) And uh, then the character who has become my favorite, I think, his name is Peter. Oh, the psychologist? He's a friend of Johnny's who is a psychologist. And Johnny's always like, well, you're a psychologist, Peter. Tell us what you think. And he'll like offer wisdom. (laughs) He also doesn't appear until like over halfway into the movie. And he just shows up as if he's been there all along. And then the craziest thing is that he disappears again and is replaced by another character who's never named. In the credits, he's called Steven, but he clearly fills the same role as Peter. He's like a continuation of Peter, acts basically the same way, and everybody acts like this new character has been there the whole time. I didn't even notice it was a different actor. I got to be honest. I don't, oh, oh, I think I remember this guy. He's he's kind of like a schleppy looking guy. I remember. Yeah. At the party. Right. He shows up for the party scene. and He says, I feel like I'm sitting on an atomic bomb. Great line. Do you have an individual favorite line from this movie, Brian? Keep your stupid comments in your pocket is up there for me. That's mine, too. <laughs> Leave your stupid comments in your pocket. <laughs> It's like two layers removed from a thing a human would say. (laughs) Yeah. But it still feels like a good one. Yeah. That one's way up there. (laughs) But there, there's a lot. Also, yeah, the storyline is just very meandering. So the status quo doesn't change a lot. I wouldn't even say meandering. I would just say nothing happens and it repeats the same beats 50 times. (laughs) 80, 90 times. That's too many times. Something strange that happens is there's a scene where everyone is wearing tuxedos. Oh, yeah. Now, there's been t- 
talk that Johnny and Lisa are going to get married. Like, I think at one point they say the wedding's a month away. There might be another time where they say it's a week away. Then suddenly there's a scene where they're all in tuxedos. And Denny, I think, says, wow, you'll look great in your wedding photos. And so was this their wedding day? Did they get married? I don't know. We, we don't see a wedding. An unanswerable question. Did they just all assemble in their finery to take the wedding photos, but then not do the ceremony yet? Like, come back another day for the ceremony? Hard to say. But another thing they like to do in this world is play football. And playing football is like standing in a circle and tossing the football to each other underhand. The football tossing in this is... I don't want to say it's the funniest thing because there's so many contenders for the funniest thing, but none of them, none of them know how to throw a football. It's like they, they, it's as if they'd never seen a person throw a football and they, they toss it. They're like three feet apart when they're tossing it to each other and they're doing like underhand tosses. Like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> and- Something I noticed this watch through is that Peter is always hesitant to join in on any activities. He's like, Mark is smoking weed and Peter says, you know, I don't smoke that stuff, man. And he like, he doesn't take a drink. And then when they all go out to play football, he's like, no, no, I don't want to play football. So, <laughs> and then when he, they finally drag him out there, he like catches the ball once and falls down in the alley. Oh, yeah. Pratt fall. But slowly... Tommy, Johnny, is becoming aware of his wife's infidelity, or whatever their relationship is, future spouse, because she's been telling, like, a lot of different people that she's she's getting it on with Mark. And so Tommy, as part of his efforts to get to the bottom of the truth, he hooks a tape recorder to his telephone and I don't know how he does this. It, yeah. I don't. It doesn't work this way. You can't just like take a, a a recorder and stick it next to a phone, and it records every conversation that goes through it. <laughs> and if you go to like a raucous Rocky Horror style screening of the room, which by the way I've done that like five or six times, probably seen this on the big screen. Oh wow. Because uh, they do it annually in Williamsburg. That was actually not my doing. It's just another guy in the film program does that. Uh, but anyway, when this happens and he's hooking the recorder into the phone, people sing the Mission Impossible theme song. Because <laughs> it's like covert espionage. Yeah. I was sure we were never going to see the recorder again. That one, that's one of few plot threads that does come back when it gets set up. Yep. Because, well, Lisa throws a birthday party for Johnny. And this is the scene that has by far the most people in it. It's just the room is full. I really like Lisa's ruse here when she says, let's all go out for cake, everybody. Go out to the yard and have cake. And they all walk out the door. And then she slams the door behind them and starts making out with Mark. And Mark's like, are you crazy? Everybody's here. And she says, no, they're not. They're all outside. <laughs> you think someone's not, no one's going to like go, oh, I got to use the bathroom. <laughs> Yeah, some some great clandestine affairs. Very, very secretive. And for, like, the amount that this is supposed to be secret, she's telling everyone. She's talking about it in open air all the time. <laughs> uh, but then finally, Johnny comes back in and sees them together and confronts Mark. But it happens, like, twice. <laughs> yes. Why? They, like, they argue, then he walks away, and he comes back, and they have... I was like, did I, did I rewind or something? <laughs> but then the second time is a bigger blow up and we, we, they like shove each other and Tommy else. I'm fed up with this world. And by the way, he learned like halfway through the movie, there was a scene where he was spying on the conversation, but like, he acts like he doesn't know. He even defends her at one point. He's like, 
oh, she's my wife. It's okay. I mean, in a competent drama, I think it would be like his dawning acceptance that his picturesque romance isn't okay. But here it just plays as like the sequencing of events just makes no sense. He finds out then he's just living life normal and then he finds out again and this time he's really mad. So I don't know. Yeah, a lot of inconsistencies, like even the degree to which Lisa is attracted to Johnny seems to change. Like in the middle of the movie, they they are like getting drunk and, and you get another sex scene when Tommy's got the tie on his head. He drinks the like vodka or whatever it is and it's just drizzling down his face. Oh, and then he slams the glass down and you hear a really loud shatter effect. There's so much ADR in this movie, like audio added after the effect. Some of it's pretty bad, too. I listened to it with headphones for the very first time this go around, and I could hear just the artificiality of all the sounds that were tacked on. That one, the one where they start drinking and they hook up. That was the moment. I watched this over two nights. I said, I swear to God, if this is another sex scene, we're turning this movie off. And sure enough, we did. That's, we were like, we we're going to finish this one the next night. <laughs> Some good music during the sex scenes. There's like this this pop R&B number. It's like, you are my rose, you are my rose, you are my rose. You said some good music. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> There's some music. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you're like trying to seize on anything but the visuals. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's kind of overbearing too. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but like that might have been commissioned for this movie. It's, everything else has a budget. I would expect that did too. I think so. And when Tommy takes off his shirt, it's an experience because <laughs> I mean, he's, he's totally ripped, like just rippling with muscles, but also it's unappealing. <laughs> like his skin looks like stretched Turkey or something. <laughs> Leathery and like, ugh. yeah, pallid, yeah. like a gross fish, like a newt or something. I don't know. Not something you want to touch or have touch you. <laughs> <laughs> or smell yeah <laughs> but i mean he clearly is a is a fit dude so in the wake of this party he confronts lisa <laughs> and what he confronts her with is the tape recording like it's not enough to just say okay you're clearly with mark here at the party but he's like i have the conclusive evidence plays this tape recording which weirdly is different from the phone call that we just saw happen immediately before. Like the audio is not the same. Oh, see, we were debating that and I thought it was different. My wife was like, I think it was the same. But so you're saying it is it different words or is it just like different intonation? It's like more words. So okay. I don't know if maybe there were bits that we didn't see and we're meant to think the time elapsed. But like the tape is longer than what they were saying on the phone. So Lisa leaves. And Johnny has an epic meltdown where he tears the room apart. It just goes on and on and on. <laughs> He's got to pull like each drawer out of the dresser and then tip the dresser over and just sweep every horizontal surface. And the craziest thing to me is he picks up the television, which is an old school, like 90s CRT television and he throws it out the window. And of course, you get a cutaway of it shattering down on the ground, which is like a funny shot to have in there. But I mean, think about the mechanics of that. Those TVs are so heavy, Dan. You can't just pick one up and throw it. No, I can't. Yeah. Tommy Wiseau can. <laughs> He's like a circus strongman. He should have gone into that line of work, I think. And so, yeah. Nothing left to smash in the room. The whirlwind subsides. And Johnny opens this little box that he's got. Well, first he, like, rolls around and dry humps Lisa's dress. <laughs> Has flashbacks of sex scenes that we've already seen. <laughs> but then he grabs this little box, opens it up, and pulls out a gun, which 
this time I realized was probably the gun he stole from Chris R. So a little bit of Chekhov's like set up and pay off. And he kills himself with the gun. Then in the final tableau, everybody like shows up again. Mark and Lisa and Denny to all bemoan how badly they and mostly Lisa treated the Saint Johnny. Real bummer of an ending. It's like not very funny. It's like, I don't know. I was just kind of uncomfortably sitting through it. In that regard, though, it's kind of like Troll 2. Where it's like you get like a resolution and then suddenly the trolls are back and they eat the mom and Joshua is just screaming. It's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I suppose. Yeah. But I guess this was where we were headed all along. It's not really a twist. It's just a bummer, as you said. Mm-hmm. And that's the room from 2003. So, Dan, uh, we're going to like kind of bisect this episode and but we do need to part here for a little while and and then come back for our discussion of the disaster artist but at our sit down here you asked dan how much did i see myself in tommy Wiseau, and i fired back with how much do you see me in tommy Wiseau? <laughs> not very much is the answer i guess it's like any person who's a creative type sometimes like there are moments when there's like a distance from the world and I just gather that like Tommy Wiseau is like always in that land. It's like he's never connected with the people around him, really. Now, the the biopic that we see of him confronts that topic to some extent. Certainly. And we're going to talk talk some more about that because it's it's interesting. It's I mean, we'll 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 say whether or not it's good, but I'm glad that you watched it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've seen you when you're in the gauntlet zone and you're like doing things your way and like not everyone's on the same wavelength. This is kind of like a toxic curdled version of that in some to some extent. <laughs> Am I totally off base? Do you do you just like totally see him as an alien creature or do you have any empathy with him? You're right. You're right. And I do need to bear in mind that other people can perceive me for externally. I mean, I don't mean that as a criticism. So something that I feel like you might be talking about, I don't know for sure, but we've done several 24-hour speed filmmaking competitions, at least one of which you were there for, and I find <laughs> that tensions can run high at those things. Oh, really? I, I I have found that. It's like, yeah. It is an undertaking to marshal a lot of different people. You know, get get a project made, be that shepherd that a director has to be so i'm gonna i'm gonna think about that a little bit more and maybe have more to add when we talk disaster artist i mean you're you're also tall and dark-haired and in good shape you you don't look like a goblin and i haven't i don't think i've seen you with your shirt off or if i have it's been a while so i can't speak to whether you have the same pallid skin that he does i I don't think you do oh join our discord and you can judge Brian's pecs. Doesn't she call it his pecs at one point? You have nice pecs. <laughs> you have nice legs, Lisa. Another famous moment that that I found just very deeply funny is so part of the, this thing that kind of comes up and then gets dropped is like Lisa's framing him for hitting her by getting him drunk. That's like the one weird sex scene. Not the one weird sex scene. There's a lot of those. The one of the ones that we talked about. And so he he has this monologue. I did not hit her. And then he walks outside and just the timing where he immediately says, oh, hi, Mark, like with no instantaneous <laughs> shift between them is very, very funny. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> Good impression. Yeah. So, Brian, I have a here's another thing about the room. Bob Odenkirk is doing a remake this year. Have you heard about that? I saw that. I think it's really weird. Like, I don't know that it's called for. Also, Bob Odenkirk is in The Disaster Artist. Yeah, they have some interesting cast members for that. And I think Greg Sestero plays Chris R. in the remake, which is kind of odd. (laughs) That had me wondering if you, let's say you were involved in the remake, what part would you want to play? 
in the room. I think I'd want to be Peter. Yeah, you'd be a good Peter, I think. What about you? Do you have a role picked out? Would you be Denny? I would be Denny. That was my answer. <laughs> I'm in on Denny. I'm short like the actor who plays Denny. Yeah. I've been told I have a baby face sometimes. Oh, like baby this face. Guy does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what about any, like, other lines that stuck out to you, Dan, in the room? Just things that were perfect little chestnuts of, of Tommy wisdom. Yeah. I will say this movie works incredibly on the micro sense where like every little scene is a treasure. There's always something you're never, you're never going to get through a scene without there being something on, on a macro level. It's a deeply unpleasant movie because you have just a conflict that never grows or develops and stretches out to 80 minutes. And so I guess what I'm saying is there's so many good little moments and you, you can't go more than a minute or two without a good one. They like abruptly change conversation all the time. The famous one is he says, so how's your sex life? But there's other stuff like when they're talking about his job and his promotion. And I, it's just again, it's it feels like quasi human, not quite human. <laughs> what about how would you compare this to something like after last season? This is much funnier and more entertaining than after last season. And it has more of the makings of a real ass movie. After last season, just slides right off your brain from start to finish. <laughs> this one, like, it'll be like something will come and like pierce your brain and like stick there whether you want it to or not. Some insane delivery or turn of phrase <laughs> or image of people underhandedly tossing the football to each other. <laughs> the guy who plays Chris R. in the room. The actor's name is Dan Jan Jeegan, which is like a pirate or something. I don't know. Oh, and I heard that in the audiobook. I was like, that's a great name. Dan Jan Jeegan. Oh, another thing I noticed, there's a lot of times where he like brings out like whiskey glasses and then just pours a bottle of water into them and they like cheers and sip from the, the glass. I think it's supposed to be water, not not liquor, but I don't know. Well, there's debate about this. Okay. I, I've heard people call it scotchka. People who think that it's a glass of scotch that gets vodka poured into it, which is completely bizarre. My read is that it's some other dark liquid, like it could be tea or uh, apple juice or something that they're pouring the vodka into. There is that other drink, but I think there's also somewhere it's just clear, but I don't know. So you're saying it's a dark liquid? I think so. At least in the scene with the ties and where he's just getting it all over himself. Okay, yeah, yeah. A lot of long establishing so shots. Like, it'll be like a 540 degree rotation where we see the entirety of the Golden Gate Bridge. In the Rocky Horror style screenings, whenever there's a long bridge pan, people start singing the Full House song. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look. That's good. Any particular favorite viewing memories other than that? I guess you brought up two of them. Uh, how many times have you seen The Room, Brian? This was probably like seven or eight. Gotcha. So it's been quite a few times, mainly because this guy in Williamsburg does the annual screenings. Mm -hmm. My heart is still with Troll 2, though. I think Troll 2 is an even better watching experience. I don't really feel gross watching troll 2 and i do feel kind of gross watching this <laughs> that one has like more competency and more strangeness in it um right troll 2 has like a lot of interesting things that happen there's interesting character design the the whole idea that they have to like go into the wilderness like a classic horror movie whereas here they're just in a house all the time Except for when they go to, like, the San Francisco park and throw the football around and jog on the stairs. So we'll see when we get to the ratings how I feel about it in the context of my so bad it's good means it's actually good. But I would say I think this is more watchable than, like, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Certainly more watchable than after last season. And I would say it's less fun to watch than, like, than Troll 2, for example. Good to know. I, I think I'd pretty much agree with that. Certainly more watchable 
then something like Birdemic, which is the one that came after this. So people are like, oh, this is the next one. This is the next troll to the room, Plan 9. And I don't know. I'm not going to make you watch that one. Okay. It's it's the birds by Hitchcock, but instead of birds, they're like clip art stuck on the screen. Oh, man. Hitchcock comes up in The Disaster Artist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think this is probably a good parting point for us, Brian. We can pick up on the disaster artist when we sync back up. Sounds good, Dan. Talk to you soon. All right. <laughs> <laughs>